just a few minutes, uh, we will be looking at uh, several passages of Scripture. Um, we'll look at uh, John chapter 17, verses 22 through 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, and then we will uh, flip over to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, and we will look at verses 1 through 6, and then verse 13 of that, if you want to mark those in your Bible, and uh, so you can find them easier when we go to read, um, and that sort of thing, that's fine, it's already in the Bible app, or on our website if you happen to be uh, using either one of those, but John 17, 22 through 23, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and 13. Have you ever uh, thought about the unity of the church and um, why it seems so essential in Scripture? If we're reading through the New Testament, uh, we will find that the unity of the church is one of the most important subjects in the New Testament. And yet it's also one of the most difficult to apply in the church. People will often, in fact, misapply it. They will say things like, uh, people are to know that we are Christians by our love, not by our doctrinal agreement. Or let's focus on what we agree on and just set aside where we disagree and what happens is sound doctrine gets thrown out for the sake of being able to, to join hand in hand in unity and um, sing, we are one in the spirit, we are one in love. And the result of that kind of unity is not really biblical unity at all. Of course, we could go to the opposite extreme as well in an attempt to preserve the purity of the church and uh, uh, we can divide over every single minor issue in the church. You've probably heard of some of these minor issues. You know things like, well, you have to use the King James only Bible. Or some will even say that you have to use the 1611 King James Bible as if uh, that's what the Apostle Paul used or something like that. And and uh, most people could probably not even read the 1611 King James Bible. Or some churches will say, you must abstain from all forms of alcohol or tobacco, or you can't be a part of their church. Or women can't wear pants and makeup, or they can't be in the church. And, and so we take these debatable matters, and um, some of them aren't even really debatable, to be honest with you, and we elevate these these things to positions uh, that they should not be in the church and we use them for dividing lines in the church. There are thousands of Protestant denominations globally, plus there are many Catholic and Orthodox Christians. Even among the Baptists, we have dozens of different groups as Baptists. We have Southern Baptists, that's what our church is. We're Southern Baptist Church. We have American Baptists. We have Independent Baptists. We have conservative Baptists, we have uh, Calvinistic Baptists, we have the Free Will Baptists, we have the General Baptists, we have the Landmark Baptists, we have the Primitive Baptists, we have the Old Regular uh, Baptists, we have the Old Time Missionary Baptists, we have the Seventh Day Baptists, and, 
And there's even more. We could go on and on because what happens in, in Baptist churches is somebody gets all upset and they say, well, I'm just going to go start my own little Baptist denomination. As I stated previously in the New Testament, the local church was primarily defined by the city that it was in. And so you had the church at Antioch and the church at Jerusalem and the church at Ephesus and the church at Corinth and the church at Rome or wherever it might be. And everyone who believed in Jesus was part of the church in the city in which they lived. In larger cities, these churches most likely would gather into these numerous house churches. And, and since churches didn't have uh, uh, buildings at the time, they didn't construct buildings of, uh, for worship. And, and uh, that didn't come, in, in, in fact, until the 4th century. However, today we know that there are often dozens of churches in every city in North America. Just in the city of Washington, we easily have over a dozen churches. However, when we think of our differences in doctrine and practice, I can't see any way that we could ever come together as one church. I mean, it's hard enough to get Southern Baptist churches to come together. Furthermore, the idea of unity gets further complicated when we consider that there are different levels of unity. On an individual level, every true believer is one with every other true believer, and that's, that's a form of unity. We have this shared life in Jesus Christ, so believers can enjoy fellowship with other believers, even if they go to different churches. And so you could go have fellowship with somebody from another church, and that's fine because you are both believers. Also, churches that hold to the truth of the gospel and hold to different secondary doctrinal distinctives can join together for various causes like evangelism and helping the poor and, and prayer in the community over concerns. And even on a wider level, churches can come together even with non-Christian groups to work for common grace, such as protecting the unborn, laws that support the traditional family, anti-drug laws. However, we have to be careful that our common association does not imply to the public that we agree in all spiritual matters. So let's, let's see what we're talking about from Scripture this morning, and then we'll use that to, to break out what it is a, a united church looks like. And so I would ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's Word as we look at these several passages of scripture, starting first with John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. Be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me Love them even as you loved me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. We read this. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one spirit. And then over in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and then verse 13. 
I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over and through all and in all. Skip down to verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, take this word this morning and use it to penetrate our, our hearts, our lives. Lord, I pray that, that through it you will speak to us. Lord, if there's ways in us this morning that are, that are not unifying, May we hear those. May we repent. Lord, if there's areas where we need to work on unity, may we do so. And as we get to the practical part of this message, Lord, would you speak to us in a practical way, in ways that we would know that we need to adjust or correct our direction so that we would indeed be a church that's united in all we do. Speak for your saints are listening, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a lot that, that I could say about unity, and in particular church unity. But this morning I'm going to focus on three areas of unity. They will be why unity is important, what unity is not, in what unity is. And then we will look at some practical applications of it. Now here's the bottom line of what I'm going to be driving home in this message today, and that's this. Because Christian unity is vitally important, it must be biblically pursued. Because Christian unity is vitally important, it must be biblically pursued. So first we want to notice why is unity important? Why is it important? The answer to that question can be many reasons, but this morning I want to notice two reasons why unity is important. Reason number one to why unity is important is because Christ died to secure it. Christ died to secure it. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, which we didn't read this morning, verses 13 through 16, Paul writes this, but now in Christ Jesus, you have once were far, you who were once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Now notice what Paul is saying. It took the cross of Christ first 
to bring those who were near or those who were far off near. So the cross took those who were far off and brought them near. And then he's talking about the reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles. These groups of people were alienated from each other. You had the Jews, you had the Gentiles. That is until the cross of Christ. Because of the cross, they've been brought together. Through the cross, Jews and Gentiles come into one body, known as the church. It took the death of the Son of God to bring these two groups together. And it makes me wonder, why is there so much division in the church? If Christ died to secure unity, then why is there so much disunity in the body of Christ? What God has brought together, no one should put asunder. We should apply that to the church, not just to marriage, but to the church. God has brought the church together. We shouldn't be looking for ways to tear it apart. And so since Christ died to secure the unity of the church, it is absolutely imperative that we labor with all that we have to preserve the unity that Christ has brought to the church and not only preserve it, but that we display it for all to see. There's a second reason um, I want us to see when it comes to the importance of unity and why it's so important. Number one, that Christ died to secure it. Number two, because it was a witness or because it is a witness to the world. Because it is a witness to the world. Earlier, we read from John 17. And, and uh, Mike had read that as well. John 17, verses 20 through 23. Let me read that again. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, and they may all be one. Just as you and the Father are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Listen, Christ has already secured our unity on the cross. He's already secured it. And it's primarily spiritual, not visible, but at the same time, there must be a visible expression of unity. If people are going to notice it, you, know, you don't notice something that's not visible. And that's what Jesus is praying right here. That, they, that there would be this unity, that they would be united. Why? Why does he pray that they would be united? He tells us why he's praying it. So that the world will see the unity and know that God sent Jesus Christ and loves them as he loves Christ. Listen, we must understand that the unbelieving world should be able to look into the church and see something inside of the church, inside of the body of Christ, that is so radically different than what they see outside of the walls of the church and in the rest of the world. And they, they should look and say, that's not natural. In fact, that has to be super 
natural. The point is that our visible unity with one another should cause unbelievers to take notice and cause them to want to be a part of the church. The problem is this seems to rarely be the case because the world looks into the church and sees Christians that are no different than the rest of the world. They look into the church and they see Christians fighting and bickering and backbiting and gossiping about one another and, and stabbing one another in the back and saying things they shouldn't say about one another and treating one another poorly. And then they look out in the world and they see the exact same thing. Is there anything attractive about that? No. There's nothing to attract them to the church that's supposed to be Unified, that's supposed to be united, that's supposed to show grace and love and care for one another. And they say, I see better, better things from non-Christians. It's supposed to be a witness to the world. So unity is important because Christ died to secure it, because it's a witness to the world. Now I want to notice what unity is not. I found that there's often some confusion regarding unity. So I felt that it probably is a good idea for us to see um, what it is not. So first notice, it is not mainly outward. It is not mainly outward. It's important to understand that the Bible has two types of unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, which we read earlier, Paul refers uh, uh, to this, that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit to the bond of peace. Now, the unity of the Spirit is a fact that has already happened for believers. However, we must be diligent to preserve the unity. This is the same unity that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and are all made to drink of the one Spirit. Christ accomplished this unity on the cross. We, we would use this term, this is positional unity positional unity now also Ephesians 4:13 after talking about the ministry of pastors and teachers who equip the saints for the work of ministry Paul adds this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ the unity of faith is not yet a reality this is something that we we experience more and more as we grow closer and closer to Christ. As we know more and more about Christ, we go grow in unity to one another. We would call this practical unity. So two Ps, right? Positional unity, it's already secured, already done. It's because of my salvation. Practical unity, it's it's not yet. The more I grow closer to Christ, the more I'm unified with my brother and sister in Christ. Because it's a work in progress. So when I say unity is not mainly outward, I'm speaking of positional unity. And under point five, we will look at practical unity. But here, positional unity. Here's three main things I want us to see concerning that positional unity and what it's not. Number one, it's not organizational. It's not organizational. There are organizations... Um, church councils, these, these kinds of things that have a, a variety of churches involved that promote this organizational or external unity among their various denominations. The point is that they're trying to set aside areas in which they may differ so they can come and work together on common ground. And say, well, we all have this common ground. However, there's often a problem because these councils and these things are 
often historically and notoriously, theologically and politically liberal. And they will include denominations that either deny the gospel or they flat out compromise the gospel. Christ never prayed for a one world church that was organized under a governing body. And so it's not organizational unity. It's not this, oh, well, we have all these churches together and this is an organizational unity. That's not what he's talking about. Number two, it's not uniformity. It's not uniformity. Being one body in Christ does not mean that we all have to look alike, we have to act alike, we have to talk alike, and enjoy the same kinds of activities. It'd be really weird if I showed up next week and everybody was wearing a pink tie. That'd be strange. I don't know if you've experienced this or seen people that belong to an organization, sometimes even a church, and they expect everyone to dress alike, to look alike, to act alike. And so often what happens is uh, there will be a cult leader that does this, right? And everyone will try to look like this cult leader, act like him, talk like him, mimic him, dress like him. That's not Christianity. That doesn't do any, that has nothing to do with unity. That's uniformity. The whole analogy of being members of Christ's body is meant to imply that all members do not look the same or even serve the same function. The beauty of the body is that it functions as one body, even though it consists of all these different members. Not only is it not uniformity, but it's also not unanimity. unanimity. That's a hard one to say. It's not unanimity. What I mean by this is sometimes we think people have to unanimously agree on every single small doctrine. And if there's disagreement, well, we lack unity. I want us to use some critical thinking here because we need to be careful. There are three levels of Bible doctrine, and I want to look at them real quick. Three levels. Level number one, essential truths for salvation. Essential truth for salvation. We have these essential truths that are necessary for salvation. If we deny these truths, then we commit heresy and we deny the faith. These truths would be inspiration of the Scripture, the Trinity, the full deity of Christ, Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross, his bodily resurrection, his second coming, and salvation by grace through faith alone, apart from works. Those are non-negotiable. We cannot be like, well, I don't know about that. It's, it's actually some works plus faith. No, it's not. That's heresy. That's wrong. That's not of Scripture. So the non-negotiable, well, I don't really believe in the Trinity. It's not negotiable. These are essential truths for salvation. And we can't have any division among those essential truths. So in other words, if somebody comes into the church and, and they start teaching on one of these essential truths and they teach a false doctrine, we better do something about it. Those are essential truths. But there's a second thing. It's important truths, but they're not saved. Important truths, but not saving. These truths will affect uh, often how you live as a Christian, how we understand God, man, salvation, the Christian life. However, genuine believers have differing opinions on these matters. Let me give you some examples. God's sovereignty versus man's free will and our salvation. Views of baptism, church governance, biblical prophecy, old earth versus young earth creationism. Charismatic gifts, roles of men and women in the church and in the home, Christian psychology, divorce and remarriage. Now, granted, some of these issues are, are um, bordering on essential, 
but we must recognize that those who differ from us in these matters are still believers. They're still believers. We, we would still embrace them as a believer. Yes, I don't agree with them, but they are a believer. And then there's a third truth. And these are interesting truths, but not essential or important. These are the truths that don't really affect how you live as a Christian. They're things like minor interpretive issues on difficult passages of Scripture. Things uh, that are, that are uh, areas that are not mandated in Scripture and other issues. So, for example, um, were the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, who were they? Did Adam have a belly button? Right? It doesn't matter. Like, you can argue about that all day long, but it doesn't matter. When does the battle in Ezekiel chapter 38 take place? Did Christ really descend into hell? Which I address that in the sermon and go back and, and listen to that. But these are issues that they just don't matter. These can also be known as primary doctrine, secondary doctrine, and tertiary doctrine. The point is not to elevate those things to a level where they don't need to be elevated. Don't use these tertiary things as a test for unity with other believers. Like, oh, well, we can't hang out because you don't know if Adam had a belly button. <laughs> so see, why unity is important, what it is not, okay, it's we see what it's not, and now I want us to notice what it is. What is unity? Unity is an unseen truth that's based on a shared life through saving faith. It's an unseen truth that is based on a shared life through saving faith. The Father answered Jesus' prayer for his people to be one through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who baptizes every believer into one body of Christ. This is the unity that Paul encourages us to preserve in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. He then goes on to identify seven elements of Christian unity. And, and he arranges them around each member of the Trinity. He says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. As much as I'd like to comment on all seven of these elements, we don't have the time to do so. Interestingly, some of these seven elements, such as baptism, the Holy Spirit, prophecy, they've caused major divisions in churches. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones points out when he says this, Paul probably structured this sentence in this way to show that the unity of the church is a manifestation of the perfection of the Godhead. He observed that the unity Paul was describing as is not just a question of friendliness or fellowship. Rather, it is something which lifts us up into the realm of the blessed, holy trinity. And so true Christian unity is not getting together and talking about uh, football scores while you're having a cup of coffee. That's, that's nice. That's friendly. But instead, it's bound up with our common relationship with the triune God. That's true unity. That, that I'm united with you because you and I have a common relationship with the triune God. It's centered around yours and mine's common salvation. We do not have to work to establish it. It's already there. We already have this 
unity. We just have to work to preserve it and protect it. Meaning, you and I have to practice this unity. We have to put it into practice. And this is kind of where the, the rubber hits the road, so to speak, right? Because, to be honest, I can't tell you how many times I will be with other Christians and they want to seemingly talk about everything else but the Lord. And then, and then, check this out. When you bring up the Lord or you, you want to talk theology or something about God with them, they look at you like you've got three heads. And sometimes I'm thinking, I thought that we were, we were united as brother and sister in Christ or brother and brother, whatever it might be. I thought there was this unity over salvation and over the Trinity, yet you don't seem to want to talk about anything relating to God. And that's a problem. And this leads me to my final point. I want to share with you this morning. Unity must be preserved and protected. But how do we do it? Unity must be preserved and protected. But how? As I've made clear, the unity of the Spirit is a fact. It's already, already taken place. Through his baptizing all believers in the one body of Christ, we're all encouraged to preserve this positional unity. And Paul goes on to say that as gifted leaders, equip the body for the work of service. And the goal is that we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is practical unity that comes as we grow in our maturity, coming to know Jesus Christ more deeply. This is largely doctrinal unity, shared by those who understand on an experiential level what the Bible reveals about who Jesus is. It means that we can sit down and talk about Jesus and about the Bible and about the Scripture. And, and we can look down and go, oh, wow, two hours just passed by. So here's a practical question. How do we preserve the unity of the Spirit and perfect and perfect the unity of the faith? How do we do that? How do we preserve it and then perfect it? I want to give us seven practical ways that we can preserve and perfect to Christian, true Christian unity. And I'm not going to like expand on these uh, for five minutes each, so don't worry. You don't need to freak out like, oh man, pastor's going to preach for three hours. No, <laughs> I didn't do that. We do this, first of all, by working hard to have harmonious relationships with all believers. By working hard to have harmonious relationships with all believers. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul encourages us that we are to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. And then after talking about the unity of the body, he, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul adds this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord's forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Suppose we're going to have harmonious relationships. 
In that case, whether we're talking about these relationships in our home or these relationships in the church, we must understand that they will not just happen. Do we understand that? That harmonious relationships, whether in the home or in the church, aren't going to just happen. You're not going to wake up one morning and this harmonious relationship spontaneously combusted. There it is. I got a harmonious relationship. You have to work at it. And it's hard work, right? Some people find being compassionate easy. Some, not so much. That's something I have to work on. Compassion, being compassionate is something I have to work on. That's a struggle for me. I mean, somebody falls down, I'm like, get up and rub dirt on it. You're okay. <laughs> We're kind. We're humble. Those take work. Meek. Patient with one another. Oh boy, that takes some work, right? The person that does that thing that just gets under your skin, they do it over and over and over again, patient with one another. Loving and forgiving of one another, even when you don't want to be. You see, that's a choice. That's the whole point. These are choices that you make every single day in all of your relationships, whether that's a relationship with your wife, whether it's a relationship with a friend, whether it's relationships in the church, these are choices that you make every single day. Am I going to be compassionate today? Am I going to be kind to others today? Am I going to be humble today? Am I going to be meek today? Am I going to be patient with other people today? Am I going to be loving and forgiving of, of one another? Am I going to do these things? It's a choice you make every day. Whether at home or in church. And so... This is the appeal. We have to work hard, church, at harmonious relationships. We have to make those choices, not just in our home, but in the body of Christ every single day. B, or number two, by growing in our understanding of biblical truth. We attain the unity of our faith by coming to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, and reading the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The closer you and I grow to Christ, the more we understand and the more we grow in Christ, as he is revealed in the word of God, the deeper our unity will be with one another. One sure sign of an immature Christian is a lack of unity. That's a sure sign. When somebody gossips about other people in the church or they're constantly backbiting or talking or blah, 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 blah. They're running their mouth. Or as I say in my house, quit running your yapper. They're doing that, right? That's a sure sign they're immature. We have to grow in our understanding of biblical truth. C, by displaying racial, cultural, and social unity and diversity. By displaying racial, cultural, and social unity and diversity. Paul's making this point very clear in Galatians 3.28. When he writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. He sought to demonstrate the unity between the Jews and the Gentiles that was made possible through Jesus Christ. Paul raised this large financial gift from, a Gentile, from the Gentile churches and delivered it to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Let me make something abundantly clear. It is absolutely wrong and sinful to divide the church along ethnic or cultural lines. 
It's sinful. Unless for some reason there's a language barrier. And then they have to divide because uh, they have to be with those that speak their language to understand anything. What I mean is there should not be Jewish churches, Gentile churches, black churches, Native American churches. It shouldn't be the case. White churches. The church is to be the church. It's not supposed to have a cultural identity. It's supposed to be racially and culturally diverse. Just like their community might be. So the church is to reflect the community that it's in. And sometimes this is one of the reasons why churches die. Because the culture around the church changes, but the church does not. Church remains the same. So this got me to thinking about Washington, Illinois. I'm sure most of you are familiar with our surroundings and whether or not our church reflects our surroundings. But here's some stats. These are from 2018. The five largest ethnic groups in Washington, Illinois. You probably know what they are, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. White non-Hispanic, 92.9%. Asian non-Hispanic, 2.23%. Two plus ethnicities, non-Hispanic, 2%. White Hispanic, 1.21%. And other Hispanic, 0.689%. And so all I'm saying is the church should closely reflect those percentages. If, we, if this church was somewhere else, it should reflect those percentages. If the culture around the church in Washington, Illinois started to change, the church should reflect what that is. And if we don't, you'll die. Plain and simple. D, by accepting and appreciating one another's gifts. Paul dealt with this in the Corinthian church. They're experiencing all these factions, right? And, and devoted a large, he devotes a large portion of chapter 12 to the analogy of the church as the body of Christ made up of all these diverse and essential members. Paul said that no member can say to another member, I have no need of you. Yes, we all have different personalities. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different preferences. Every single one of us has different spiritual gifts. And we need to accept and appreciate our differences. Next, we notice that in order to preserve and perfect unity, we must do so by accepting all of those Christ accepts. We should be welcoming into church membership all those whom Christ has saved, as long as those that have a differing view on secondary matters agree not to cause factions or differences. Someone may hold a different perspective on baptism or even on charismatic gifts. That shouldn't keep us from, from inviting them to be a part of our body. So for example, some may believe that immersion is not a necessary motive of baptism. They could still join the church, but as Baptists, they have to be immersed. And as long as they, they don't say, well, I'm just going to go around spreading that you don't have to be baptized by that way. We have no issue. We can allow them to fellowship with us, become members, as long as they don't promote a contrary view to what we hold. Additionally, the office of elder should be restricted to those who hold to a Baptistic view of baptism. The same is true for those that hold to a validity of charismatic gifts being, being uh, used today. I'm personally what I would call a skeptically cautious when it comes to expressing the gifts of tongues and interpretation of tongues and healings. If someone holds to a different view, they're free to join the church as long as they don't promote their view and 
cause divisions in the church. If we believe someone is truly saved, we should accept them as members if, there's, if there are only these secondary issues at stake. We shouldn't hold up unbiblical things as a test for membership. So we shouldn't hold up how someone dresses as a test for membership. Personally, I believe churches should have a covenant, a covenant membership where people covenant together. I've rewritten our covenant. Most of you know that. I think it did it last year. Maybe in the future we'll adopt that standard and say this is what we're going to covenant together to do. The next way we preserve and perfect unity is by rejoicing when other gospel preaching churches do well. That one's hard. It's hard for many people, but especially for pastors. But we have to get rid of the spirit of competition among my Bible-believing churches where the gospel is being preached and Christ is being exalted. If they're reaching their community and have more attending than we do, we should praise God. We're all on the same team. Perhaps we can learn from them on how to be more effective in our outreach. We may disagree on secondary matters and issues, but we should not run them down or put them down out of a spirit of jealousy or competition. Well, did you see what they did? Oh, I can't believe it. You might say, well, pastor, it's hard when, when I don't see our little church growing and I, I see these church plants with all kinds of people at them. Well, you know what my answer to you is? Do something about it. In fact, maybe you'd say, well, I, I believe I have the gift of evangelism. Then you, you can do something about it. I have a job for you. Why don't you be an evangelism director in the church? Use your gifts in the church. Don't leave everything up to the pastor. Oh, well, pastor will do it. Uh, he'll take care of it. Lastly, we preserve and perfect unity by holding to essential biblical truth while guarding against pride. I believe it's great to strive for deep doctrinal and theological understanding and to love doctrinal purity. But we have to be on guard against pride. It's easy to get all puffed up and prideful being right on every point of doctrine. John Calvin, who knew his doctrine very well, said this, Pride or haughtiness is the cause and commencement of all contentions. If for some reason God in his grace has granted us more light than another church, remember what Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 when he said this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast? If you did not receive it, we must always be humble, gracious, patient with others who may not understand everything that we understand. I've learned that often when it comes to doctrine and theology or anything for that matter, growth is a slow process. Suppose God uses us to impart a more profound knowledge of the truth who he is to another believer. In that case, it will come through our kindness and our love, not through our spiritual arrogance and our pride. I'll close with this this morning. I'm not so delusional to think that these seven practical applications will solve the overwhelming problem of Christianity. I don't know how to overcome the problem, if I'm honest. <clears throat> I don't know how to overcome the divisions of the church at large. We should be seeking to grow in unity and in faith. We should hold our convictions with close humility. And that can't be done if we compromise the truth 
that the Lord teaches us. I know that, that all gospel preaching and believing churches teach the same thing when it comes to salvation. That is that you must trust in Christ alone for salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One can't truly be united to the church unless they know Christ as their Savior. And if you've never trusted in Christ, you can trust in Him today. You can do that by praying something like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's Son, that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my, rest of my life. It's not a magic prayer. Christ saves you if you trust in him. And that's all it is. It's your expression of your trust in him. If you said that prayer or something like it, would you do me a favor and text the word faith to 309-328-3488 so we can follow up with you? Once again, that's word faith to 309-328-3488. I think it's appropriate to close with this quote from J.C. Ryle. He said this, Controversy and religious strife, no doubt, are odious things. But there are times when they are positive necessity. Unity and peace are very delightful, but they are brought too dear if they are brought at the expense of truth. Controversy, in fact, is one of the conditions under which truth in every age has to be defended and maintained. And it is nonsense to ignore, to ignore it. My question to you is a simple one. Are you preserving and protecting unity in the church? Because Christ died for it. And it's a display of our witness to a lost world. Were you just looking for things to fight about, argue about, and be disunified about? Just kind of doing your own thing. With little concern for unity. Maybe the Lord's spoken to you this morning about your commitment to unity. Whether you are practically committed to it. Is it in practice? Do others see it? Or do they see something else? If God's spoken to you this morning, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond. And uh, you can come forward as I'm standing down here at the end of the service. We can always text uh, a message to 309-328-3488. But here in a moment, we're going to sing a song. And I'd ask that you examine your heart and ask yourself, am I truly united as the Lord wants me to be? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this word. And Lord, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of every person's life this morning. I don't know their practice in their home. I don't know their practice when they're um, not in the church or when they're talking with their, their friends that perhaps aren't part of the church. You do. Lord, you know whether there's people that listen to this message or will listen to this message that that aren't practicing unity. Lord, you know the hearts of your people. You know whether there's people that, that 
perhaps may say they're unified with the church, but in their heart they're far from it. You know whether there's people that gossip, backbite, say bad things about their church or even about their pastor, about others in their church. You know all. It's all laid bare in front of your eyes. We can't hide any of it from you. Lord, would you convict us this morning? The unity is so vital because you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for it so that we would be united. He paid the price so that we could have unity. And Lord, it's so vital because there's a world outside the walls of this church that's lost and dying and condemned to hell. And oh Lord, my prayer is that they would peer into this church and see a church that is so unified that God, they don't have an explanation other than that is supernatural. That's the way it's supposed to be. And if we're working against that, bring conviction to our lives this morning. However you've spoken to us, I pray that we'd be willing to respond. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, you'd be willing to come this morning. Thank <laughs> you.